0: Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Haim Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Right, Hello, fans of takeaways. Get ready. Here it is. Another NAOP Southern Nevada program recap. NAOP is the association for the commercial real estate development industry. The June program was a mid-year economic forecast. This time there was no panel. It was a keynote from a smart guy, from an out-of-town guy, Jim Costello, chief economist with real assets, MSCI. So after Jim gave his keynote to the audience, Naops Southern Nevada's resident host, you know I'm talking about Owen Sherwood with Fidelity Title, he did what he does. He facilitated the Q&A. The program sponsor was SR Construction. All right, so these uh, mid-year check-ins, they're important. They're important so that we get a sense of what the data is saying, what's out there. You have to listen to the data. NAOP Southern Nevada, they bring us the good data. The glengarry data all right I'm gonna go away you're gonna hear applause and then you will hear the full program the NAOP June mid-year forecast an economic update on the national CRE market enjoy
1: uh, good morning everybody thank you for having me here and thank you for your time I really appreciate that I'm really uh, I like the energy in this room. I was kind of shocked at the number of folks who are here. Uh, so thank you for, for being here. Uh, I have, uh, uh, I was here actually yesterday doing a talk, and my week actually started with a NAOP event in New York. I'm bookended by NAOP this week. Uh, so it's, it's been a busy week for me. But coming out here, uh, I was for, here for a conference yesterday. Uh, NARE, the National Association of Real Estate Editors, and you know that's one of the things that Las Vegas is good for—just conferences. Everybody from around uh, the country coming to one place. It's just easy to get everybody here. Uh, but uh, for me personally, this is the first time back since COVID, uh, so I'm uh, kind of happy about that and just seeing uh, that there's life here. Uh, so in any case, I have a couple slides here. Let's see how. Let's see how well this works. Oh, I had to turn it on. That's right. Duh. All right, here we go. All right, so I've got kind of a few main points I'm going to talk about. Um, uh, I'm going to talk about some of the transaction volume and the changes recently, what's been happening, uh, where we're seeing some pullback. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about national trends and some markets and then you know, show you a little bit about how Las Vegas compares. Uh, I'm going to get into some of the issues around where there is uncertainty and where there is pain in the market today. Uh, uh, I'm gonna talk about the debt markets in particular. That's where a lot of the issues of pain kind of roll into the debt markets. And then I'm gonna have some thoughts about what to think about moving forward. And and some some of the ways to think about how this cycle may be different than other ones. And that's an important thing because Sometimes people are always fighting the last war. And this, this time is different than other downturns. Uh, so the same playbook that worked before isn't always going to work. So deal volume's down. We all know that, right? Sale uh, activity is not at the same levels uh, that it was uh, a year ago. But I look at this in two different ways. You can look at it on the one hand, it's a negative. Oh, deal volume down at double digit rates. Woe is me, the world is ending, right? The optimist thinks about, well, 2022 was just obscenely good for activity. It was a period of excess liquidity. You had interest rates at record low levels, investors were hungry for any kind of yield worldwide, and deal volume surged. So one view is that you know, double-digit rates of decline aren't such a big, bad thing, because last year was just, was just you know, an unusual period. Excessively high uh, investment activity. And so in the chart, I'm not sure how well it shows up you know, just given the lighting, but there's a line, a little orange line that shows the average first quarter deal volume in the United States over time. And then it, it kind of comes to the first quarter of this year, and it's below a little bit, but not bent down too much. So it's kind of like the market's just kind of getting back to normal levels. And then the question is, you know, are you just hitting normal on the way back down? You're kind of like Wile e. coyote, you know, running off the cliff or something. Uh, or you know, are you just hitting this normal level, and we're getting over the period of excess liquidity, and we start to stabilize? Uh, monthly data is, is showing um, that you know it's probably going down a little bit more, but I'm not sure that it ne- necessarily collapses the same way as a financial crisis. A lot of things never just kind of hit an average level and stop. You know, it, it, it's the kind of thing that numbers go down, they overshoot a target, then they come back up the other direction of a target and then down again, and there's a little bit of back and forth. And we talk a lot about that back and forth kind of activity later, because we're responding to a shock from COVID even now, across the whole economy, across prices of all asset classes, across stocks. And so you have some periods where people are gonna be thinking about, oh, well, the market's bad because what happened relative to the last quarter, But sometimes it's not a story about last quarter. Sometimes it's a story about just the ongoing response to that shock from COVID. But deal volume was down in in April, down at double-digit rates across all sector types. And so that's a a concerning sign, nonetheless. And uh, I'll get into the issues around um, uh, financing later uh, that talk about that. Uh, Not sure how well this slide shows up, but the, this point on where this first quarter activity was relative to history, it wasn't the same for every property type. What I'm showing in this chart, on the x-axis, that's everything, the average first quarter activity historically, and the y-axis is uh, the first quarter of this year. So anything below that red line is a sector where investment activity was lower in the first quarter than normal. And it's really an office story. That's where the challenges were in the quarter. Everything else was still above that line. Now, retail was technically above the line because of one big portfolio sale in the first quarter. You take that out, and it would have been below the line. You know, so it would have been less activity than before. But it shows this divergence. There still is investor interest in apartments and industrial uh, You know, less so, and there's more concerns around retail and office because of demand issues, uncertainty there, uncertainty around what kind of capex spending you have to have moving forward. So when people talk about challenges in the market, it's really more of an office and and retail story. You know, the other sectors are down because financing is, is a challenge. It's not as easy as before. But nonetheless, you know, it's still a little bit above uh, historic norms. So it's not, it's not an end of the world kind of situation for those sectors yet. Uh, I'm not sure how well this slide shows up, uh, but it shows every market around the country and sort of who's the leader on the deal line board and, and why. And if you take a picture of it, it's going to look horrible, so don't, don't do that. I'll have my QR code at the very end and you can get the slides, unless you're taking a picture of me from my dating profile so I look better, you know. You want to do that? That's fine. But, uh, uh, but the, the top market here, the key thing to take away from this is what's not at the top. In the past, in every ranking we did, Manhattan was always at the top of the list. Uh, the largest, most liquid investment market in the world was always either Manhattan or central London. You know, those two were always fighting back and forth. And now it's been Dallas and Los Angeles that have been fighting back and forth for that top position. Into the first quarter of this year, L.A. took that that lead. And there's a couple things driving it. Those two markets are catching the, the lead because the investment market is going towards the asset types that are popular in those markets, apartments and industrial. All the big logistics assets in both of those markets contribute, but then the apartment markets, because they're both big, sprawling uh, urban areas that favor a lot of garden apartment developments, those are uh, assets that churn a lot, and, and so both of those markets are, are seeing kind of elevated volume. Now, LA did have a bit of a boost from some office sales, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't like investors making a big call on LA office being fantastic. The biggest deal was one that sold for $104 million, but the previous sale for that building had been at 208 million, and then they had put 68 million of capex into the building along the way. So uh, somebody lost some money. But uh, nonetheless, you know, the, the market is at the top. Uh, looking at Las Vegas, it's, it's at the bottom of that list. I put a top 25 list together, and I took the 25th out and put Las Vegas in there. It was at number 34, um, uh, but you know, it, it had the similar kind of exposure to sectors as, uh, as other markets. One thing that, that I did find kind of interesting, I took a look at a table of just deal volume over the 12 months to the first quarter 2020, deal volume over the 12 months to the first quarter of 2023 versus deal volume over the same period to the first quarter of 2022, and just looking at the growth rates across sectors. The same kind of decline that we've seen nationally uh, across sectors. Senior housing and care was up though, and that's, that's a rare thing nationally, that there's some sort of growth. Uh, it wasn't like one big deal that did it either. There are a lot of $40, 50000000 million deals uh, that kind of uh, came through from like June of last year on, that just boosted the activity. But it does point to a bigger issue, and, and you know, to, to Scott's MOB stuff earlier, uh, there's, there's a move on the part of investors to be looking more towards asset classes that are different, driven by demographic demand issues as opposed to economic cycle issues because demographics are a lot more predictable. I'm an, I'm an economist and I've done work to forecast jobs and where jobs are headed, but, and interest rates, you know, that's really complicated to try and forecast. Nobody gets it right. But population is easy to forecast. You count the number of young men, you count the number of young women, nature happens, you get population growth. And, and so you look at the demographic-driven strategies and there's just more investor interest there. I'm looking here at a chart of uh, what we're calling alternative real estate sectors, and that's gonna include medical office, senior housing, student housing, and it has a similar kind of period of excess liquidity and a decline as the other types. But you know, if we look at a table of some of the individual types, there's a little bit better growth of a few of them. I mean, it faces the same issue that every other property type does of a change in the credit markets, making it harder to get deals done. Uh, but nonetheless, investors are thinking about these alternative sectors because of the strength of that demographic demand story. It's just more predictable. You have more certainty and in this world where everyone keeps saying, oh, a recession maybe six months out. Where will the Fed stop raising rates? Are they going to cut? Are they going to raise? It's just so many uncertainties. You want something you can hang your hat on. And the demographic stuff is something that's a lot more predictable. But uh, the pain and where we're feeling it, uh, it's really the, the change in, 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 in mortgage rates. I'm showing here a chart that uh, uh, has, has screwed up a chart that I used to do. I used to do this one chart where I would take cap rates and they'd decompose uh, sort of the cap rate to 10-year treasury spread, but then I'd do a cap rate to a mortgage rate spread because in normal times, mortgage rates are always lower than the cap rate. If it's higher than the cap rate, you don't get benefits from leverage and you don't do deals. Uh, and that's, that's why deal volume is down so much because it's inverted. Cap rates just haven't moved enough yet. Uh, current owners don't wanna sell at the cap rates that buyers are willing to come in at. Uh, you know, that, that's, it's a natural human behavior. Nobody wants to take a loss. Nobody wants to be forced to take a loss. You know, rather, they'll only take the loss when they're forced to. And what we see here, the, the cap rates, this is for the apartment sector, but it's the same thing across every property type. The, the, the blue line is our index of cap rates that we build through looking at every transaction in the country and thinking about what quality characteristics drove that. Sometimes a new building can get a lower cap rate. Sometimes a large building can get a different cap rate. And controlling for all those characteristics, we build a trend, a a number that shows the trend rather than the noise of just the quality shifting as, as things trade. This is kind of a Bose headset for cap rates. It filters out the noise. But then the red line, that is... Uh, a a mortgage rate that we create from all the loan information we're looking at. And the mortgage rates, they have been going up faster than the cap rates. And how how does anybody get a deal done in that situation? It's people getting some deals done, they're maybe a little unusual, uh, underwriting some stronger income growth, uh, thinking that they can kind of paper over the challenges, or thinking that maybe I'm just buying this today and two years from now, interest rates will be back to normal, and I can, I can get back in. I'm not sure that that works as much. There's been some optimism on that point. Uh, I've been to some conferences with lenders seriously talking as if they think the 10-year treasury is going to go back down to where it was in 2021, 2022. Which, just if you're going to get a 10-year treasury at that kind of a low level... Uh, you are saying that you think the economy is going to go into the tank again. And it just, it just uh, uh, personally, I don't hope we don't have a collapse like that, uh, but it just, it does, it's not realistic in my mind to expect the interest rates go back to those obscenely low levels. That was a sign of weakness in the economy. That's saying that people didn't have any demand for money. They weren't investing in their companies and growth, and they didn't see any future, and that's where they're stuffing the money in the mattress of the 10-year treasury. So it's hard to see mortgage rates going back down to the really low levels that they were in 2021, 2022. Uh, and, and so at some point, something here has to give. And I think a lot of owners are gonna have to face a situation that if they want liquidity, they're not gonna get last year's pricing. Uh, and that, that trend on cap rates, it's the same across all property types. This increase, it's you know, 60, 70 basis points across sectors. And that's just what's transacted so far. When I talk to uh, investors, you know, a lot of them are just are incredulous at times. They're like, no, 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 it's gone up more. I wouldn't buy with a 60 basis point increase. I only buy with a 120 basis point increase. I only buy with a 300 basis point increase. Uh, and so, again, that kind of disconnect is still creating a bit of illiquidity in the market. And just buyers and sellers are, are too far apart on, on where they want to be. So I, I, I got this kid at uh, MIT. He's not a kid anymore, what am I saying? He's married. He's working for the Central Bank of uh, the Netherlands now. Uh, but uh got a PhD student at MIT to do a study for us where he took all of our deal data, and he calculated a model to figure out what would the buyer reservation price and the seller reservation price be for every deal. You know, where were they, where were they and, and how would they come together? And how much does the market move to keep deal activity at normal levels? It's just sort of economics 101. You increase the price, you reduce the demand, you know, so you reduce the deal activity. And so uh, looking at that, he put together a trend for me showing how much of a change in prices would be needed to bring deal volume back down to normal levels. And we can see on the very far right, so far, it's up to about 10 percent for most property types uh, of, of that kind of adjustment, a little less for apartments, a little less for industrial. Uh, but you know, there's, there's some additional adjustment that's still needed in addition to the changes we've seen so far. But it's not the kind of declines that we saw during the financial crisis. It's not that intense. Uh, it's, you know, it's an adjustment for most sectors to a one-time change in financial conditions, and then you know, it should move back to normal. That's, that's sort of the, the expectation from this uh, type of analysis. For the office market, maybe this one doesn't work as well, because there are other changes underway there. Uh, But there are other changes underway there, but it hasn't shown up much in distress yet. Uh, Distress asset sales, uh, I'm looking here at the yellow bars. That's the dollar volume of distress sales, and the blue line is distress as a share of the total market. And you look all the way back to the financial crisis, which started in December of 2007. Within a couple of years, we were up to like 20% of the market was all distress sales. We're three years on now from the initial shock of COVID. And that blue line is still pretty minimal. There's not too much in terms of activity. Now, we did have a lot of intervention along the way, just uh, ungodly amounts of money pumped into the economy, put a floor under prices, prevented anybody from taking a loss. That's been taken away, so maybe a year from now, two years from now, we'd have the same kind of conditions pop up, and there's a lot of talk every day in the press about a new borrower uh, entering negotiations with their lenders, talks about uh, assets uh, being, you know, people talking about throwing the keys at lenders. There's more discussion of that stuff, but it hasn't come through yet to distress sales. Although, personally, I wonder if it is going to come through to distress sales in the same way this time through. Uh, every cycle's different. And the financial crisis, it's far enough away where it's in the rearview mirror, but it's close enough where a lot of people who were working at that time are working now and were more ready for it and knew that some of the conditions that were in place uh, would be coming again, so they didn't... They didn't uh, have contracts that were as uh, uh, loosely defined on uh, defaults this time through. So it might not be as easy this time to kind of scoop up notes and control a property as it was after the financial crisis and uh, getting into this dress sales in the same way. But th- th- make no mistake, I really do think we're going to have some challenges in the next two years on uh, the financial side. I'm looking here at a schedule of loan maturities. Over the, over the years ahead. And we're doing this by building up from the loan level every property sector uh, and every lender type that's out there and highlighting uh, where you know, the, the maturities are coming. The thing to keep an eye on is, uh, well, this is by property type. Uh, by property type, the thing that I find most interesting, the blue at the bottom, that's the office. The office tends to be a little bit front-loaded. The office maturities tend to come a little bit more in the next two years, whereas apartment is a little bit spread out into the future. Apartments are the biggest uh, uh, batch of maturity simply because there's more apartment investment than anything. But office is a little front-loaded. And that that is the area, remember from the deal volume where a chart that where there's most uncertainty. So as those loans mature, there's gonna be a lot of hand-wringing and discussions about what happens next. And that's that's leads me into this uh, topic about just the debt markets and just how stable they are. Uh, One thing that has been nice so far is that we don't have a total collapse of the debt markets. There are a lot more legs in the stool in this cycle than what we saw in the financial crisis. Going into the financial crisis, I had clients in the life insurance world reaching out to me asking, hey, Can you help us write a paper, help us do a study showing that there still is a need for life insurance companies? We're getting beat up so bad by CMBS, some of our board are thinking of getting out of the business entirely. Uh, Because CMBS, we we weren't tracking the numbers at the time, but I think it was about 60 percent of all loan originations ahead of the financial crisis. You get so much of the sector dependent on one source of debt, you're going to have trouble. Because you take that one uh, source of debt away, and then the whole market will collapse. That was the story of the SNL crisis. Yet otherwise, cash-flowing assets in the SNL crisis that couldn't get refinanced at any price after the banks had to shut down lending because there was no other source of lending at the time. Life insurance companies were around then, but they were still so small on the relative share. It was almost entirely a bank business. Uh, and so you had the collapse, it was just exacerbated by taking away 60% of the capital stack. Today, you still have a lot of diversity in the lending uh, market. I'm showing here these colors on this chart, those are different types of lenders. The blues on the far right, those are different levels of banks, the lightest blue, the local banks, the dark blue, international banks. On the far, on the far uh, left, you got uh, an orange and a red. The red are the CMBS lenders. The orange are what we call investor-driven lenders. That's debt funds, mortgage rates, old line, hard money lenders. The thing about the 2022 composition of lending, it looks a lot to me like everything from the years before COVID in terms of the diversity. And that's a good sign because it just shows that you got a diverse pool of lenders willing to work with everybody into 2022. First quarter of this year, we've had some troubles. You know, it's it's, it's pulling back a bit. you know, particularly with um, uh, you know the the larger folks in the uh, uh, CMBS world have been pulling back, but the first quarter of this year we've also had a lot of negative news stories around the small banks, and I think some of it was just sensationalist and was causing trouble in the market that didn't need to happen, and I really give. Um, and I really gave some folks at the Wall Street Journal some crap on this because they, they, you know, it was a case of enumeracy. You had a non-real estate reporter writing a story about real estate, so I'll start with that. and They, they, they said that 70 percent of commercial real estate financing in the United States came from uh, the small local banks, and they're trying to uh, push a story that because Silicon Valley Bank, a small local bank, was having trouble and you know, 70% of commercial real estate financing came from small banks, the commercial real estate was going to die. And it was just wrong. Uh, what they did, they went to a Fed survey called the H8 survey that pulls every bank uh, lending uh, activity together. And they figure out you know, how much are they exposed to real estate, how much are they exposed to aviation, how much are they exposed to agriculture, and so on. And you know, from that, they said, well, the small banks in here are 70% of all this lending, so therefore they are the, the biggest source of lending. But they didn't know, I mean this reporter didn't know that banks weren't the only source of lending. Right here, you know, the, the life companies, the CMS, the investor-driven lenders, there were other lender types out there. And so they caused a big stir and a big you know, crazy story you know, uh, uh, of gloom and doom simply because of that notion that uh, the small banks are doing so much lending. Now, one thing you'll see in the chart, this is from our data when we collect loan by loan, and this, this, maybe you won't see it because it's really light in the room. Um, I got to think about different colors for these in the future, maybe. But what what it shows, there's a nice steady increase over time of the local and regional banks gaining market share, and it's up to around 30% at the end of the year. So there is something in that, of the small banks taking on more share. And that was also pointed out uh, by folks thinking that, hey, there's something wrong here. Maybe small banks, they're less sophisticated, they don't know as much, they're taking on more risk than others are, aren't. And I, I think that is uh, misplaced as well. What was really happening is that the market was moving to these small banks. Every lender does a certain type of deal. If I am of you know, a small debt fund in Greenwich, Connecticut, I'm only doing 200, 300 million dollar deals at a time because I don't have my own origination network. I'm just you know, putting some money to work for a potentate in the Middle East and I'm just finding some big deals through all the brokers I know and just calling them on the phones and just putting a lot of money out in big lumpy uh, drops. As opposed to this, the local regional banks, they're working with folks in their local community you know, who just know the town know what assets are there, and it's typically smaller lot sizes that fit their capital structure better. And what's happened over time, you look at from, uh, this chart shows the percent share of deal activity in the six major metros in the United States versus the rest of the country. The six major metros being Boston, New York, DC, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, uh, LA and San Francisco. From like 2017, 2015 on, there's just a big uptick and that share in the small local um, uh, uh, investment activity. So if more deals are being done in places like Dallas, Tucson, Tupelo, Las Vegas, uh, you're just gonna have the local banks doing more of the financing. That's just their game. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's not the end of the world as that happened. It is the case though, those lenders, all lenders are becoming more conservative. This is a survey from the Fed showing sort of the underwriting standards that lenders are using. Are they tightening standards? Are they loosening standards? Uh, anytime it's above the line, on a net basis, more respondents are tightening standards. Below the line, they're loosening standards. You got to be careful interpreting this, though. It's, like it's, it's up quite a lot. You know, on a net basis, 60% of the folks are tightening standards. But that doesn't mean that you're going to have a collapse in lending like we did in the financial crisis. Tightening standards can mean, oh, I'm I'm uh, uh, decreasing LTVs by uh, well, 500 basis points. Tightening standards can also mean I'm decreasing the LTVs by 2,000 basis points. So there's not a matter of scale there. Nonetheless, people are more conservative today, and they're being more cautious, and that is um, uh, uh, that is going to you know, lead to uh, you know, less credit availability in the near term at a time when we have these big, this big wave of maturities coming. It's the same chart as before, just segmented differently. I'm showing here the maturities by the type of lenders, and the near term, the two big groups that have a lot of loans coming due are the CMBS world, that's the carnation color at the bottom, and the orange, that's the debt funds. The debt funds were the most aggressive lenders in 2021 and 2022. Highest LTVs, lowest mortgage rates, fewest covenants. Uh, some of those loans are really going to have some trouble financing. Uh, the CMBS, you know, those are 10 year loans, so some of them maturing in 2013, 2014, uh, rather maturing in 2023 20, and 2024, were or originated in 2013 and 2014 as things reset after the financial crisis. They've had tremendous price growth along the way. Uh, so maybe there's enough price growth that they can get out of it at a lower, mortgage, at a lower LTV, so maybe that doesn't face as much of a problem. Uh, but I'd really be looking at, uh, at troubles in the, in, the, in the investor-driven space because they were so aggressive. Uh, but I wanted to close now before we get to questions and just leave you some thoughts. It's, it's not all bad. You know, the, I've had some negative thoughts on, on the office sector. I actually have some positive thoughts on office as well on the use of space, but uh, there are some things here that are changing I think people have to be careful about. Um, One of them is that not every downturn is the same. Uh, When I go out and do a lot of talks at industry events recently, this room is a mix of ages, but a lot of rooms I've been going into recently, uh, I'm the oldest person in the room, and uh, there's so many folks who their only experience with the recession was what they went through in the global financial crisis. They weren't working in any previous downturn. And so their thought is that, oh, we're gonna have a downturn. It'll be like the financial crisis. I gotta be, pre- be prepared for the same kind of uh, chaos. But uh, I'm looking here at prices all the way back to the 1950s and it's not always that kind of a severe drop. We had two big double digit declines in prices since the 1950s. The S&L crisis and the global financial crisis. What they had in common was you take away the whole debt portion of the capital stack. You take away 60% of the capital stack, you're gonna have a bad day. And you know, that's what's different today. There's still some lending. It's not as easy as before, but there's something there. So it doesn't have that, that same characteristic and the starting conditions weren't around the same kind of crazy loans that we saw preceding the s and crisis and preceding the financial crisis. Maybe some exception in the debt funds, but that's not the whole market. Uh, the other thing to take away is like, maybe you can't see it as easily here, but we have a big decline in prices right now in growth rates, but we also had a tremendous growth in prices in 2021 and 2022. So it's kind of like a rubber band. You know, you pull it one direction, you let go, you have a shock COVID. And then suddenly spending happens again, and that's why we had an inflation spike, and then it came through to property prices as well. It's just, it's just kind of zipping back and forth a bit. So it doesn't necessarily have to continue down at the same kind of pace as the financial crisis just because we might hit a recession. But I think the, uh, the key thing that I've been looking at is inflation and what is the Fed gonna do. And I'm showing two things here on, on inflation, and, and one, one, chart, one part of this chart makes me think the Fed may have finished the job they were trying to do. The blue, uh, rather the yellow line, that's actual inflation, and just in terms of where you know prices have been growing in the economy. The blue is an interesting survey that the University of Michigan does that looks at inflation expectations. Where do people think inflation is going to go? And that, that survey of expectations, it's hard to get people to change their your view on these things. You go all the way back uh, to the start of this series, and the yellow line, actual inflation, was below people's expectations of inflation in the future. But over, over a good you know, 10-year period, they started to change their expectations, expecting lower and lower inflation moving forward. So people were, before then, starting to accept that, hey, we're in a lower inflation environment for a good long time now. And then we hit the, hit the, the, the a crisis of COVID and the recovery period that led to a high inflation, and that inflation expectation spiked, and the Fed stomped hard on the brake by raising the Fed funds rate. But you can see that blue, it's, it's kind of turned the corner. And so maybe, maybe they've done their job in terms of putting a fire out on tamping inflation expectations, and that's a faster drop in inflation expectations than we've seen before. So that, that is, in my mind, an interesting thing. We've changed people's expectations quickly by just how quickly the Fed was stomping on the brakes. It's been painful for a lot of us in real estate, but the more painful thing would have been if inflation expectations got out of hand and then we ended up like Brazil in the 1980s. Uh, because talking with my, my clients in Brazil, you don't have a large liquid real estate market there because even today, the legacy of inflation in the 80s. So inflation is something that you really Really had to fight, and but it looks like, you know, if this blue trend continues, that might uh, uh, show that they that they did their job. And, uh, uh, you know, you're trying to take some photos earlier. This is one where you want to take some photos, because you get my contact information. You can use this, to, and I can get you slides. But you know, the thing the thing I just wanted to leave you with, you know, we're we're heading into some challenging situations. There's opportunities and challenges, right? You know, as, as the market faces a repricing and people deal with those issues, they're gonna need a lot of help figuring out where asset values are at, figuring out the right way to monetize something. And uh, I know there's a ton of investors lining up to try and put money to work in these in this, in this world. They know that there's some benefits of owning real estate, of owning that kind of an income stream. They just wanna make sure it's in the right place and make sure that you know, it's priced at the appropriate level. And they're waiting to put money to work. There's a lot of dry powder out there. It's just you're just kind of waiting for you know, everything to finally be realized on uh, repricing. So with that, I, I'll submit myself to your questions. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me all right? Yeah.
2: Jim, thank you. Well, I don't know you. if everybody knows, but having Jim here is an absolute wonder. At uh, Fidelity National Title, we rely on their data to identify opportunities, challenges, and, you know, everything that's going on in the market so we can kind of stay on top of that. And so when we found out Jim was going to be in town, especially with our changed breakfast date, it was kind of a, a perfect opportunity. So, so grateful to have you here. Thank you. Jim. <clears throat> so, you know, um, incredible information. I think great national context to what's kind of gone on in our local market. We um, kind of saw it on the title and escrow front as early as April of last year when industrial and multifamily deals appeared to start getting stressed in escrow where the financing component no longer made sense relative to the cap rate of a transaction. And I, I think, you know, that only got a little bit more challenging as 2022 went on. And We now see fewer instances at this part of the year where deals are coming into escrow and not understanding the financial component or the the financing component. So I I think that's a a positive thing because the deals that are starting out are um, being contemplated much more uh, smartly and wisely. So I, I guess my first question for you, Jim, would be, you know, Las Vegas has a lot of things going for it right now. Um, we have F1 in town. The legislature's toiling with what to do with the potential Las Vegas A's situation. We have a tremendous amount of new office development in the Southwest. And, um, you know, the, the potential of film studios going in town. So it, it kind of feels like with all the the picture that you've painted behind us, like there's one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake in a way. Is this market, are there regional phenomenas where there's better markets than not? Is the Southwest kind of still a solid investment spot or are there other pockets of the country that are experiencing similar uh, similar growth despite the interest rate environment?
1: Well, the, the, The growth you're talking about, things like F1, uh, uh, DAs, I think, I hope that happens. Imagine, you know, then hitting balls out of the park. uh, Like in San Francisco, people will be out in the kayaks catching balls coming out of the park. In Wrigley in Chicago, you have uh, people out in the street. uh, You know, I was talking with someone, they think that, well, given some of the positions, maybe would end up on the strip, and that'd be kind of neat, you know, seeing people catching foul balls there. Uh, But it's that growth. It's it's one of the things that Las Vegas has. It, it ties with, in with the existing strengths of the city, of you know, uh, tourism and entertainment and hospitality, and it's just a, another dimension of that. It's another activity while you're here. You know, other cities, uh, the sports teams are something for the local folks and local entertainment, and uh, there will be you know big fans. We see a fan right there. Uh, 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 but uh, you know, th- there will be big fans locally, but. The opportunity to bring people in from outside of uh, uh, the area uh, for that entertainment, that's going to be uh, the big driver. The, uh, uh, but it, So in some sense, that growth is also dependent on every other part of the country being healthy. <laughs> if, uh, if the rest of the uh, country runs into trouble and people don't have money to spend and they're not going to travel as much, I mean, we've seen what ha- has happened to Las Vegas when that happens in the past. So you know the rest of the country. Uh, it's not that you know some some of that growth is really just indicative of the the spending that's happening across the country. Personal incomes are growing. Anybody who wants to find a job can find a job today. If this is a recession, bring it on. I mean this is this is this is a record kind of employment situation. Uh, but the the uh, the growth uh, in other sectors, I think, is interesting. A more diverse economy could be useful. Something like film studios. That could be an interesting complement to the rest of the local economy, um, because you know, the, it trades off of some of the entertainment stuff. You can bring some of the people in. They're in the show business world, you know, working back and forth with other folks. That could be an interesting thing. But the, the film studio business had been on the rise for a number of years with the growth of streaming. And there's a lot of investors worried about the streaming and how that's been pulling back and the consolidation there, and maybe some of them got ahead of their skis on, on the studio space. Uh, long term, I think you know, it could be complementary to the city. Uh, it's so close to LA and all the film studios. Uh, there's a natural fit there, I think. There may be a timing issue that's a problem there.
2: Got it. Um, I do want to be sensitive to time, because we're running a little long today. But you talked a little bit about the banking situation. Do you foresee there being more trouble in the regional banking sector? Are are we going to see additional
1: banks fail? Do you think there's gonna be a challenge in in that regard? You know, the bank failures we've seen so far are different than the bank failures we saw in the financial crisis and previous downturns. It wasn't that they were making crazy loans that were not supportable and that all fell apart. Uh, They had assets on their books uh, tied to RMBS, CMBS, all these securitized products. And when the Fed raised rates that quickly, it changed the value of those assets, and suddenly they didn't have the assets on their books that they thought. Uh, the challenge here is that the last time the Fed raised the Fed funds rate that rapidly was in the mid-1970s, and we didn't have securitized products then. Uh, there was a very small uh, CMBS market, but it wasn't much of anything, and nobody certainly had that on their books at banks, and we had all kinds of financial innovation, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and they put those things on their balance sheets, and it worked well for a while, but, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, they didn't have the risk management in place to keep keep track of the value and the changes, and they got caught flat-footed, and we know what happened after that. Uh, Signature Bank, it's a slightly different situation. They got into crypto uh, and just weren't uh, accounting for that well. Uh, so, so, they had some exotic products in that way. There is an argument with some local New York folks i talked to that they were probably a little bit more aggressive than others on the apartment lending side. So it might be a little bit of a regional change there on how the apartment market works. But it's idiosyncratic it stories about individual banks, just things that they were doing as opposed to a broad thing that's happening to everybody. Everybody's going to deal with the fact, every local bank will deal with the fact that if they had some RMBS or some CMBS in their asset pool, that's going to be repriced. And they know that and they're working on that. Some of them, they may not be able to do anything. There might be a few small uh, uh, banks that that, uh, default. But by and large, it looks like it's not going to be a vast collapse of a large number of banks like the financial crisis. It looks like it's going to hurt bank earnings more than bank survivability. There will probably be a few more, but it's not going to be you know, the start of uh, uh, you know, a big collapse like the financial crisis.
2: Hmm. Um, so we, we talked a lot about, um, or you spoke a lot about, the debt composition. <clears throat> and is, is the private debt, the debt funds that you mentioned, do you think there's going to be a lot of potentially take backs by some of those lenders because of how aggressive the LTVs and the, the lack of, it, it was very much uh, prospective lending.
1: Yeah, well, some of those lenders were made no bones about it. They, they were out raising money, and actually, in, I saw a lot of PPMs, You know, the private placement amount was when you start to raise a fund, where people were saying that we're underwriting what happens if we have to take this building. And we know that you know, we've run these type of buildings ourselves before on the equity side of our business. So, if the loan pays off, we're fine. We're going to make a nice level of return. If it goes bad, we're ready to take position of it, and we're going to get this building at a great basis and make even more money. So, some folks were definitely running loan-to-own kind of businesses, and you know, it was it was uh, 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 some. You know, some folks may have just been desperate at times, uh, just uh, to you know, paint anything to roll the dice one more time and get that loan to keep that project alive. And that uh, it might, it might cost some of them. But yeah, you're probably gonna see more of that. It, we haven't seen a mass movement of that yet leading to foreclosures, uh, because there still has been this feeling out period where people try and figure out you know, just where things are gonna go. Because there's just been so much uncertainty of just how much the Fed would raise and would continue to raise, and uh, you know, where things would finance out. That's starting to calm down a bit, that uncertainty. And I think we, we might start to see, as loans mature, a lot more of that pushback and, and probably some more distressed sales as a result. Um, one of the things in Las Vegas that has
2: really boomed over the last several years, and candidly, even since um, probably 2014, is industrial development. And we've had a, a ton of big box logistical type uses go into this city. Do you foresee, is there unlimited potential there or is that capped at some point? Are are we gonna be able to build these big million square foot bombers for the foreseeable future or or is there a question mark around that?
1: Yeah, there's not unlimited potential. There comes a point when you oversupply it, but I think it's gonna be hard to oversupply. Uh, Number one, uh, it's easy to Shut down construction of an industrial building as opposed to, say, an office building, you're building a 50-story office tower and you get some signals in the marketplace that maybe it's not needed, it's hard to stop. As opposed to a simple tilt-up concrete building on a slab uh, that goes up so quickly and it's introduced discreetly in a number of even the big, bo- big bombers, you know, it's, it's a lot of small buildings effectively compared to one big 50-story office tower, so you can shut it off more quickly. So you don't have that same risk of just years of oversupply sitting there. Uh, But the way I look at it is the the demand is coming from just consumer activity, more shopping, shifting to online distribution systems as opposed to in-store. And that corrected a bit from the peaks we saw of online shopping during the pandemic. But it's just kind of coming back to where it would have been now had there never been a pandemic. And, but it had been on a growing path of more and more goods being sold online. The United States is still kind of low relative to countries like China in terms of the amount of goods sold in store versus online. Uh, and so I, I, it feels to me like you know, th- there, there is additional demand just from, you know, if, if, if you just look at the path from before COVID, the efficiencies that are gained from some online distribution, not having to have as much inventory as pl- in place in, in the store, because that's a big cost. Having everything sitting on the shelves gathering dust, that's a big cost for retailers. So having more of that online, it, just, it seems like it's a more efficient delivery. And that, that could generate additional demand for industrial moving forward. How high it peaks, I don't know. But you, know, you have a better potential to not overshoot the mark
2: Sorry, my baby monitor uh, was still on, and apparently my son is going down for a nap. He so didn't. I heard. Hope you he didn't. Uh, I heard. What's that crying? I heard the crying. There. He. Yeah. He just
1: must really love retail. Yeah. And, he, and yes. It's exactly. not to say I don't like retail and don't think there's a need for it, but I think retail as a, uh, it's going to be more the experiential stuff that continues to survive. Well, it's a barbell that and just the daily needs. You know, the the drugstore, the grocery store.
2: Well, I'm gonna ask you one more question before I turn it over to Dan. And you know this kind of dovetails into some of the trends that you've been talking about in the industrial retail space, but more pointedly at office, our team handling national transactions, we've done a lot of work recently with servicers on office product and some of the times when they come to us they don't even know exactly what they're working on at that point it could be a foreclosure it could be a deed in lieu it could be a loan modification it it could be a maybe they work it out and nothing ends up happening Um, but obviously with the tightening credit market you know it's more difficult to refinance an office building today And that gets me to my point of this whole work from home change since COVID. Are you tracking that in some sense? What is your perspective on how that affects the office market going forward? And and what are we to see
1: potentially from that whole dynamic? You know, this work from home phenomenon, I'm, I'm looking at it through a bit of a different lens. A lot of folks are talking about it oh, this is unprecedented. We've never seen this kind of move before. But I look at it as something that's been ongoing since the 1950s. Uh, like, like the, let's just look at the financial sector. It used to be that half of all the financial sector employment in the United States was on the island of Manhattan. And then the introduction of high-tech tools like fax machines, uh, cheap long-distance phone calling, firms realized that they could take some lower value add activity, like some clerical work, accounting, and just move it to. Uh, remote locations. And they did that two ways. One, you know, there's a reason why in the 60s and 70s we suddenly had a suburban office market develop. Uh, you know, firms realized that they could put the, the office out there and that would allow them to hire uh, uh, people who didn't have to travel as far for their commute. When you have to uh, bring someone into the, to a city and from the suburbs, and it's taking them an hour and a half each way every day, you have to pay them more just to compensate for them for the burden that they have to go. Firms compete for workers, and you've got to entice the workers to come in. And you know, so the suburban office market effectively allowed firms to reduce the wages they paid. They wouldn't just like, move someone to the suburbs and say, now we're paying you less. They'd you know, move the job to the suburbs, and then eventually they'd hire in someone new, and they wouldn't have to pay them as much to, to be there. And then the same thing with moving activity. Like Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, used to be known for just uh, good barbecue and pine furniture. But then you know, the banks, all the banks realized that they could put a lot of the back office activity there. And then it grew as a financial hub eventually, just when they got a bit of a cluster there. But they, they moved all the you know, uh, lower value add stuff out. Uh, so I, I view work from home in the same context. There's certain jobs where you don't have a need for a lot of interaction with others, some accounting type stuff, call center activity, Uh, firms might benefit from not having to pay workers as much if they can work at home for those low social capital jobs. But I think the office market continues. There's still going to be a need for the office market for jobs where you're interacting a lot with external constituents. Sales jobs, especially folks in real estate, just meeting with a lot, a lot of folks and just talking to everybody. You, you also need uh, uh, to be in the office in those kind of jobs to build social capital and help your young staff develop social capital and get to know each other, get to know how to deal with clients, how to interact with them. It, it, those are soft skills, harder to teach over Zoom, easier to teach over cocktails at uh, an event after work. Uh, and, and so I think. Certain types of jobs in the commodity space in the office market, you know, maybe that stuff is going to be more susceptible long term. But you know, the the you know the masters of the universe type workers, you know, they're going to want to be around the others. You know, use that social capital that they've developed. But I also think it's going to mean uh, sort of winners and losers in the office market. You know, the high quality stuff is going to see more tenant demand. If I've got a bunch of uh, you know, Masters of the Universe type stockbrokers in an office, they're not going to want you know, tiny little cubicles in a, in a class B building. They're going to want the nicest building and the you know, luxurious space and collaboration space, which means a lot of capex spending, uh, which is also a problem for the office owners because you know, the kind of space that these folks will want to be hard to build and you know, with, with rents down. So there's going to be a bit of a mismatch in the near term but I think, I think the, the office market, there will be some element of it that survives. There still is a need for a lot of folks to get together, but not every job. And I think that the challenge that we're facing is that a lot of jobs you know, that people are talking about is you know, being remote. They're not thinking about the whole office universe, uh, that uh, there are some elements that are needed to be together.
2: <clears throat> well, I kind of feel like the gopher in Caddyshack hanging out with like a pro golfer over here because you brought a wealth of information and <clears throat> just really, really appreciate it. I, I think of in a nod from Dan, we are going to wrap um, today. So thank you, um, Jim, so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure for well, you thank to come you. And, and join us. And I hope everybody had something to take away and appreciate it. <clears throat>
0: thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like this show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.